Thank you, David, for the reading of God's Word. Um, well, it's good, to be, it's good to be back with you all this morning. I, uh, I, I missed out on last week. I, I took a much-needed week off. I was able to visit uh, and, you know, worship with a couple of our sister churches uh, down in Brighton and down in Northville, uh, different churches in our denomination. It was, it was a good, refreshing week for me, and I believe that you guys were under the, the teaching of Mr. Haney's... Um, yeah, he, he preached last week, and from all accounts, it was, it was very good, um, so thanks to him for bringing God's Word, and I honestly am disappointed that I had to miss it. Uh, but we've had, because of, because of last week and because we took a week or a couple weeks off for Palm Sunday and for Easter, we have, we've taken a break from the book of Ephesians, but we're about to dive back into it. We have three weeks left in the book of Ephesians. We've been going for more than a few weeks it's really been a few months. Uh, last, you know, when we started the book of Ephesians, it was, it was cold out, it was dark out, it was windy, it was the middle of January, and now it's beautiful and sunny. It's like one of those five days in Michigan that we get that are perfect, right? Because like it, it, next week, it's just going to be 80 degrees and way too hot. But like this week is the week that we get to enjoy the sunshine, and it gets to be nice and cool. But yeah, we have three weeks left, uh, and then soon after that, we're actually going to start the book of Deuteronomy, which is... Deuteronomy, anyone's favorite book in here? Anyone? Deuteronomy? No one. Maybe, that, maybe that'll change by the time we're done with that sermon series. But we're, we'll start the book of Deuteronomy. I've been studying that. I've been reading that. I'm really looking forward to going into that. The text we read this morning had some tricky language in it, especially maybe if you haven't grown up in church or you're not used to reading the Bible. It talks about husbands and their relationships with their wives talks about children and their relationships with their parents. All that seems pretty straightforward. You know, we might have some quibbles in there. It also talks about how slaves should relate to their masters. Does that rub anyone else the wrong way a little bit? It doesn't say, hey, slaves, do your best to get free because we all know that slavery is a sin. It doesn't say, masters, release your slaves. No, no, no. It says, slaves, obey your masters. Not only obey them, but but do so in a way where, where you're working hard even when they're not looking. If that bothers you, that's, that's okay. There's allowed to be something inside of you that, that that doesn't sit right with. But if we are going to be a people, and we are, as David Haney mentioned a few minutes ago, who believe in sola scriptura, who believe that scripture alone is our final authority, Right? We believe in the importance of church tradition, but Scripture is always above church tradition. It's always above church doctrine. Scripture always wins. But if we're going to be people who always value Scripture, what do we do with texts like this? It's important that we deal with these things. There are two instances. One, I'm going to quote a guy who lived in the past, and then they're going to talk about a guy who lived this week. Um, there's a guy named Robert Louis Dabney, not to be confused with Robert Downey Jr. of Tony Stark Avengers fame. Robert Louis Dabney, I kept saying Robert Downey Jr. in my mind when I was preparing this, but it's, it's not that guy, totally, totally different. Robert Louis Dabney. Robert Louis Dabney was a Presbyterian. Uh, he, was, he was a great theologian. He was a great mind. When we look back in the, in the history of our faith, when we look back at, you know, great thinkers in our church tradition, we can look back to him. He was a great mind. 
He had a lot to say about Presbyterian polity, that is how we set up our church, right, because we have a unique structure. He had a lot to say about that. But he also had some really, really dark, frankly, disgusting things to say. See, Robert Louis Dabney was a Southern Presbyterian. He served as a pastor during the U.S. Civil War, and he defended slavery rather vigorously. This is a quote from our brother in Christ, Robert Louis Dabney. This is what he said. He said, thus, if the low grade of intelligence, virtue, and civilization of the African in America disqualified him for being his own guardian, and if his own true welfare and that of the community would be plainly marred by this freedom, then the law decided correctly that the African here has no natural right to his self-control as to his own labor and locomotion. Now that's written in kind of old-timey language, and if you didn't get that, instead of reading it through again, let me simplify it. He believed that maybe African Americans are so dumb that it's better for them to remain in slavery than for them to be free. He's a brother in Christ. He's a great theologian. He said that. That's disgusting, right? That is a lie from the pit of hell. But if we're going to be Christians who have in our Bibles discussions about slavery, commands for masters to treat their slaves well, commands for slaves to obey their masters, we have to reckon with this. We have to have a good view on Scripture so that we do not become like Robert Louis Dabney. Not Robert Downey Jr., Robert Louis Dabney. So that we do not become like him and defend ugliness in our own midst. Last week, you may have heard of the, uh, the Poway, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but there was a synagogue shooting in uh, California last Saturday. And the shooter was also an evangelical Christian. He was a member of a Presbyterian denomination that we would count as a good evangelical denomination. A little bit more conservative than us. You know, we would have some slight disagreements, but all in all, it is a good denomination. But there was, there was a man from that denomination, a fellow Presbyterian, who read his Bible and came to the conclusion that the Jewish people needed to be killed. So he walked into a synagogue, and he murdered, I believe, one person with the intent to murder many, many more. Because we're dealing with a, with, a, with a passage like this that's difficult, that talks about slavery, I just want to go on record and say very, very clearly that any notion of white supremacy, any notion that white or European culture is somehow better than Asian or African or South American or whatever have you culture is a lie from the pit of hell. Do not use texts like the one we are discussing this morning to defend ugly theology. It is wrong. No matter what ethnic tradition you come from, we are all in need of the salvation of Jesus Christ. The answer is not to become more European, it's not to become whiter, it's not to have more of a Judeo-Christian value, whatever that means. The answer is to repent of your sins, come to the cross, no matter what ethnicity you are, because only in Christ and only in Christ alone there is salvation. So what do we do with texts like this slavery one? 
How do we, how do we address it? How do we answer it? We're going to be going, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we're going to be going through the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, there are mentions of slavery, yes. There are also mentions of just weird practices that we don't understand. So how do we as Christians, living in the year 2019, living in America, in the West, how do we, how do we look at those things? Do we just reject them as being regressive and old and having nothing to do with us and we'd much rather, you know, talk about the epistles of Paul or the miracles of Jesus because those are at least easy to understand for our Western mind? Or do we wrestle with these commands? Do we look at them in such a way that we can learn from them? I want to propose to you three things for at least this passage. That three lenses, really, three things that we can filter these commands through in order to help us truly understand this. And we'll get to this passage eventually. But before we do, let's look at three different things. First thing, we should acknowledge that sometimes God allows for and regulates things that displease him. Let me say that again. We should acknowledge that God sometimes allows for and regulates things that displease him. The classic example of this is divorce, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the second thing, we should examine how each law, each command given in the Bible, whether it's commands for slaves to obey their masters, whether it's commands for you know, husbands as they're marrying to basically buy wives from their, from their fathers, when we look at these commands, we should not examine what and how they relate to our commands today and our culture today. We should look at how they relate to the culture of the day in which they were given. We should look at the culture of that day, and we should look at what those commands say in the culture of that day, not necessarily look back from our own culture. So that's the second one. Number three, we should look at the moral core of the law. In the middle of each law, it says something about who God is. It says something about what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is not just. And we should always look for that core in each command. Let's look at one case study from, from the book of Deuteronomy. This is, this is divorce. Before we get to the book of Deuteronomy, though, there is an ancient law code, and I hope I'm not getting too far into the weeds. This is as far as we're going. So if, if you're slipping, just stay with me a little bit, and we'll get there. There's an ancient law code called the Code of Hammurabi. It was ancient. It was pagan. It had nothing to do with the God of the Bible. It was just a law code for keeping societies together. And that law allowed for divorce for any reason, right? Your wife got too old, too ugly, whatever it was. You just wanted to get rid of her, younger, newer model. You could do it. Just say, hey, you know, I'm getting rid of you and I'm going out with somebody else. And that was totally legal. Like 4,000 years ago, in the culture of Israel's day, that was the norm. We have those laws written down. But when, when the nation of Israel comes along and God himself comes down to give the people his laws, he allows for divorce. Not because he's okay with it, but because he knows that life is ugly. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes abuse happens. Sometimes infidelity happens. Sometimes divorce happens. But the law in Deuteronomy says you can't just you know, get her away for no reason. There has to be a reason. Right? The, the scripture says if something indecent is found in her, and there's this big old debate amongst the rabbis about what the, something indecent is, but there has to be a reason to send your wife away. So even though we know that divorce is displeasing to God, we also know that God restricts it. It can't be for any reason. That's too abusive. There's a protection in there for women 
built into the law. It's not regressive, it's actually progressive. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus clarifies even further in Matthew 19, 3 through 12. You see, there had been this debate between the rabbis. They say, you know, what's the indecent thing that you're allowed to send a woman away for? Is it because she burned your toast in the morning? Is that a good enough reason? Or is it something more serious like adultery? So they go up to Jesus and they ask him, they say, Master, what, for what reason are we allowed to send someone away? And Jesus said, it's only for adultery. But then Jesus clarifies and he makes it very, very clear. He said, the reason that law is in the Bible is not because God's okay with divorce. He's not. God created marriage to be for a man and a woman. Right? They're supposed to leave their parents. They're supposed to become one new union, one new flesh. And it's not that that's okay, but the reason God gave us that command is for our hardness of hearts. Because we are sinful, sometimes God allows for things that displease him. But we look at the progression of these laws, and we see in God's law, there's a protection for women. Right? It's not just for any reason, as it was in the ancient pagan culture of that day. It was for a legitimate reason. And Jesus clarifies that. So we see, we see the progression of the law from you know, any reason divorce to divorce for a good reason, for marital infidelity. Slavery in the New Testament was a, really, it was a barbaric practice. It was, it was different than the slavery that we as Americans know, right? It wasn't necessarily based on skin color or ethnicity. Usually, if you were going to be a slave in the New Testament times, it was because you, your, your people were conquered by another people and they went and they took slaves, or it was because you sold yourself into slavery. So it didn't matter if you were white, brown, whatever, it wasn't based on skin color. You could sell yourself into slavery. But in ancient Roman culture, if you were a slave, and there were a lot of slaves in ancient Rome, if you were a slave, you had no rights. None at all. If you were a slave, you didn't even really have personality. You had no honor, completely shameful, you were a slave. That was the culture of the day. If you were a master of a slave, you could, without any repercussions whatsoever, totally legal under the law, you could kill your slave because you wanted to. That was the reality of slavery in ancient Rome. Now, that wasn't very common because slaves were valuable, and if you killed your slave, then you know, you're just putting yourself out of money. So it wasn't very common. But slaves were completely at the whim and at the will of their masters. In similar way, right? So in this passage that we've read, there are, there are three different relationships. There's husbands and wives, there's fathers and children, and then there's slaves and masters. In a similar way, right, so the, the master has authority over his slave. In a similar way, back in that day, the father as the head of the household had full authority over his wife. She was his property. He had full authority over his children, the father had a full legal right. So if, if a couple got pregnant and, you know, the wife, the wife comes to term and she delivers the baby, if the father doesn't want the baby, doesn't matter what the wife wants, but if the father doesn't want the baby, they can go to the outside of the city, they can leave the baby there to die. Fully legal in ancient Rome. 
The father, the head of the household, had full control over this. This is a patriarchal society. This is a society that looked to the emperor as being the one final authority. It looked to the father as the head of the household as being his own little mini emperor. It looked to the masters who were owners of slaves as their own mini emperors. They could do what they wanted. So when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, what do his commands look like? Yes, to us, they may seem really regressive, they may seem really old-fashioned, but in the culture of the day, to the ancient Roman, these were, these were mind-blowing, like absolutely crazy. Wives respecting their husbands, that wasn't, that wasn't called for in ancient Rome. They were called to obey, yes, but respect to love and enjoy? That's crazy. For masters to treat their slaves with respect? Absolutely bananas. Absolutely insane for an ancient Roman person, a person who lived in that culture. It was absolutely nuts for them to live by the values that Paul was encouraging them to live by here. It was radical. So when we look back, yes, some of these things may seem to be crazy to us, but in, in that day, they were crazy going the other way. Because we know that slavery as an institution is not something that God's okay with, but it's something God allows for. It's something he regulates. He says, if you're going to own slaves, right, if, if that's going to happen, you have to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. You have to be kind to them. It was radical for the day. I mentioned earlier that we have to look at the moral core of the law, right? What is that trying to teach us? With laws on divorce, we see at the very core of the law, right, that you have to have a good reason to divorce someone that teaches us what? That, that people are valuable? That women, even though they may have been considered property in that day, they are made in the image of God, they are worthy of respect? That marriage is not something to be, to be thrown away for any reason? We see God teaching us that. But in Ephesians, what is God trying to teach us through these commands? If we zoom out for a little bit, right? if we, if we go back and we kind of look as, as a whole over the book of Ephesians to see what Ephesians is telling us, just a moment of review if we can, we know that that we live in a world that is broken, that is full of sin, a world that is in need of redemption. And in chapter 1, in the chapter that the song we sang can praise and glorify, the chapter that that's based out of, it teaches us that God has a plan for the fullness of time, for all of creation, from the very start to the very finish, God has a plan to fix everything in Christ. And at the end of all things, Christ will be the head of all. Everything will be summed up in him. There will be no more crying. There will be no more tears. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more sin because Christ has fixed all of it. But in the meantime, while we're waiting for that to happen, 
the kingdom of God that is coming, the new creation that is coming, exists in little pockets around the world called churches. We are to be a people who exhibit not the culture of those around us. We are to be a people who exhibit not the allegiances of those around us, but we are supposed to be loyal to the kingdom that is to come. And we are supposed to exhibit here and now the culture and the ethics of the kingdom that is to come. A couple weeks ago, it was Easter. We talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? And we talked about how the resurrection is proof that the kingdom that is coming is breaking into this world right now, right? The resurrection is something that's going to happen at the end of time, right? Right? But it happened in human history. So the future is breaking into the here and now. In the same way, we are supposed to be a resurrection people who show the ethics of the kingdom that is to come. The passage that we are viewing this morning, the passage that we're going through, begins with submit to one another in Christ. If we were going to go back to maybe the previous verse, we'll see that grammatically it's actually kind of dependent on, on a verb from, from, chapter, from earlier in chapter 5. That is how we show that we are filled with the Spirit, right? We are filled with the Spirit. So we sing, we sing songs, right? Our, our hearts are filled with joy to the Lord. And we also, one of the things that we do because we are filled with the Spirit is submit to one another, the Spirit is the one who builds up His church. He's the one who accomplishes in this life what is going to come in the next. He's the one who's building us up. He's the one who makes us alive in Christ. He's the one who enables us to love each other radically as Christ has loved us. And if we are filled by the Spirit, if our lives are marked out by the Spirit, we will live lives that look radically different and the lives of those around us. For the ancient Ephesians, living lives in line with the kingdom that is to come, that looks like a husband who is not overly concerned with the authority that he has over his wife and his household, but a husband who loves his wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. Instead of, a, instead of a wife who submits to her husband begrudgingly because she has to, looks like a wife submitting to her husband in a loving manner, full of respect. Instead of a child who, who obeys his parents because the fear of the rod is over them, looks like a child who not only obeys his parents, but a child who seeks the honor of his parents. Children, obey your parents. Honor thy father and mother. Not just obedience, but also honor. Instead of parents who, who just say, because I told you so, and just say, because you have to do it this way, because I am your parents, and this is the way it's supposed to be. Instead of that, it looks like parents who raise their children in love and nurture, not in harshness, but bringing them up in the love and admonition of the Lord. It looks like slaves who work hard even when their master isn't looking because they know that in reality they are serving Christ who is their true master. 
It looks like masters who treat their slaves as brothers and sisters in Christ because they know that maybe the culture of the day, the slave is less than them. But they know that even the slaves among them are worthy of respect and honor because they are made in the image of God. It is interesting here, and this is something that's worth pointing out, Paul here isn't concerned with political legislation at all, right? Paul, Paul doesn't write to the Ephesians and says, you guys know this is the way, the way in which our culture has some things. It's, it's really, really bad, and we need, to, we need to, you know, pass some legislation. We need to, you know, have some, have some movements, have some protests. He doesn't say that at all, does he? I'm not saying that being politically involved is wrong. I don't think it is. I think that being politically involved is good. But we should note and we should notice that the way in which Paul encourages them to overthrow the status quo is to exhibit new creation ethics in the midst of them today. He encouraged them when they gathered as Ephesians, the upper class and the lower class, the masters and the slaves, the wealthy and the poor, the elderly and the young, whenever they gathered, Paul encouraged them to live lives of mutual submission, submit to one another. Because when they entered the doors of the, wherever they were meeting, when we enter the doors of the church, we don't have any of those, we don't have any of those statuses. That's all, that's all culture out there stuff. We are people of the kingdom. We do things differently. We love each other as Christ has loved us. We submit to each other out of love for each other. Our character and our actions should be in radical contrast to the norms and the culture of the world outside of these walls. We should look totally different. What might that look like today? What could that look like? It can be easy for us to reject other people as being different, to think that somehow we have rights and authority over someone so we don't necessarily have to give them the time of day. Right? We may look at someone who maybe makes less money than us. And maybe, maybe we wouldn't say these words out loud, right? Because this, it's 2019, we're an egalitarian society. You know, everyone's supposed to be equal. But, but in your heart, you really think that because they're a lower class than you, you're better than them. And so they're not worth giving as much time as someone who is of equal or maybe even greater means than yourself. We may look at people who do things differently than we do. Be tempted to think that they're weird or different. Be tempted to think, oh, they're not, they, they do things a different way, I'm not gonna, I would rather hang out with people who are like me and who make me comfortable. But we're not supposed to live by those ethics anymore. We're not supposed to live in the way of the people outside of these walls. We're supposed to live as the people of God. We're supposed to have new creation ethics, new creation customs. 
We're supposed to submit to each other. So let me, let me encourage you to have self-reflection. What internal, on the inside of you, what rights do you think that you have? Maybe you're not even aware of them, but, but you hold them anyway. What rights do you think that you have that you are being called to lay aside? What status do you think that you have that you are being called to lay aside? Are there people in the world around you, are there people in this congregation who you, even though you would never say these words out loud, but you think you're better than? Are there those people who you are called to love sacrificially anyway? These are hard questions. A lot of the time they deal with right, hidden, hidden prejudices, hidden, hidden um, cultural things that have been built up in us for years, right? Things that are so entrenched in the culture that we live in that we don't even notice them. They're just part of us. We are called as Christians, as people who are not from here, as people who are from the new creation that is to come, we are called to view and to challenge those things to look for them, to see the ways in which we can leave them aside. We know that our Lord and Savior, we know that he came down in humility. Because even though he had, he had the authority of God, right, he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not say, I'm going to hold on to this no matter what and never give it up. No, but what did he do? He came down in the form of a human being. He was made in the likeness of a man. He lived a life not, not as a powerful political figure, but as a poor man, a rabbi in kind of the corner of the world. He died a death, not because he deserved it, but he, de- he died a shameful death as a common criminal. For us who are lowly, for us who are in our sins. He laid aside his glory so that we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the culture that we are to have. So I beg you, Christians, I implore you, instead of using your Christianity like Robert Louis Dabney, for the man who last week shot up a synagogue on the basis of his faith, instead of using your Christianity to defend your prejudices and to, to defend your hate, use it to challenge your preconceived notions, to lay them aside so that we may submit to each other and so that we can be a people who are marked out not by the culture of the world around us, but by the culture of the world that is to come. Will you pray with me?